You will turn your Bibles to Joel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. I don't know after that, but <laughs> you would know where Joel is. We will turn to Joel. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. Chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. <clears throat> Can I have you all rise up as I read God's word? Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, for he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your children, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? Verse 15 again, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Father, we pray that you would speak to us, Lord. We thank you that even though we may be few in number, you are here in our midst. It's your word and you have to speak. And so we pray that our hearts would be prepped, our hearts would be ready, that our, uh, Lord, our minds would be uh, ready to accept, to work, and, Lord, to, uh, to do what you call us to do. And so to that end, we pray in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. Amen. Please sit down. Well, we don't know much about Joel. The only thing we know is we know his name, we know his father's name, but we don't know much about more than that. We, don't kn we know that he is from Judah, uh, but we don't know uh, under which king he was. We don't even know at one point in time whether he's pre-exilic or post-exilic. Uh, there is a debate whether he could be, uh, he could be either or. And, and, and yet, Joel catches our attention because, you know, uh, Peter makes reference about his prophecy. And usually when there's a prophecy that deals with us, there's a lot of hits. A lot of people want to talk about what Joel intended. But that's our intent for today is not prophecy. Our intent for today is to see the message that he had for Israel and what that means to us this morning or this afternoon. What is Joel trying to tell the children of Israel? And what is the principal lesson that we can take away from that? Okay, uh, You've heard of the tale of the two cities by Charles Dickens. The the famous line that it starts, it says it, it was uh, the best of times and it was the worst of times. You've heard that many times, but let me read that to you. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. What is happening is these are two cities, um, Paris and London, being compared, contrast during the French Revolution, and that's what the whole city 
uh, whole um, novels based on. And, and somehow when we read Joel, we kind of get this contrast. There's something happening here, and we want to grab hold of that contrast and try and understand that. You see, if you turn to chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, For a nation has come up against my land, against my land. It's not the prophet saying it's my land, but God is saying it is my land. Again, in Hosea chapter 9, verse 3, he says that it's my land. You see, this land, which had milk and honey flowing through it, is now devastated through with locusts. There's been a locust plague. All that was green has now become brown. Now, I don't mean it in you know, a racist way or something, but it's it just, it's a complete devastation. It's complete devastation. So total that in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, it says that no one could remember such destruction in their living memory. It says, go ask your dad, ask your grandfather. They've not seen this. They've not heard of this. That is the kind of destruction. And Joel is saying, listen, this is just the beginning. This is not the end. This is not your final judgment. This, this is just the beginning. This is just so that you know what is happening and what's going to happen. So the question we ask is, what's happening here? And so as you zoom out and you're trying to get the biblical narrative as to what Joel is trying to say, there are some lessons, and I believe we have some lessons that we can take away this, this uh, afternoon for ourselves. The one thing that I want us to understand is that Israel failed to heed God's warning. God kept saying again and again and again and again, and Israel thought it was okay. Israel thought this is God's land. There is God's temple. And so what's going to happen? He's, he's going to defend his land. He's going to defend his city, and nothing's going to happen. Our sins are not going to come in the way of God trying to, keeping, his, keeping the blessing on the land. That was their premise. You see, there were other prophets. There were Jeremiah, there was Micah, there was Habakkuk. All of these would come and say that, listen, you need to repent. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4 and 5 says this, but don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here, the Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. You see, listen, your sin is going to come in the way. That is what God is saying. Your sin, we need to start to Understand this principle that Joel was trying to tell the nation of Israel, that sin does prevent from God working, continuing to work in our lives. And so the truth of the matter is when there's warning, especially a spiritual warning, we need to do something about it. When your car starts to have those warning light, you take it to the mechanic. You see, when, when, uh, when you have, I don't know, a stomach pain or a headache or whatever, it's just a warning of something else. You have the shoulder pain. You, you feel there's something happening. You better go and get that checked. If you see a road sign, there's a, it shows danger. You need to be careful. And so much more, if it's spiritual, God is saying this is just a warning. There is something called the Hurricane Party. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but I was just reading a little bit about that 
a little while ago, and I thought uh, that's something that's applicable for us. You know, this hurricane party is when they have these hurricanes, people get together, uh, pool their resources so that they can survive through the hurricane, and that's a great idea, but sometimes they gather together just to have fun. They want to say, listen, storm is going to help us increase our fun, and so they just get together, have these hurricane party. And there's a story that comes to us from 1969 in Mississippi when the hurricane Camille was coming in and so the police chief had gone to warn an apartment building where people had gathered to have this hurricane party just 250 feet away from the seashore. And he comes and says, listen, you need to be careful. You need to vacate. You need to get away. And they start to laugh at him. And one of them says, this is my property. Arrest me or, you know, get off my property. He doesn't arrest. What he does is he takes their names of the next to, next of kin. They laugh. They continue to have the party. That night at 10, 10 o'clock or so, the storm hits. They say the speed was 250 miles an hour, the fastest ever recorded. The next day, there was just the foundation of that building. Everything was devastated. When you don't heed warnings... This problem and this consequence. And so, locusts is just the beginning. But at the same time, the, 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 the message of, the, of Joel is this. Listen, there is this devastation. There is this warning that's going to happen. But there's also this hope of salvation. There's something that you can do. There is hope. God, turn to God. The passage that we read, turn to God and be repentant, knowing that what you're about to see is just the very beginning. Even though your grandparents don't even know of such devastation, it's just the beginning. It's God's divine early warning system, the dues. I want to call it the dues for Jews. The early warning system. And somehow, we, the children of Israel, they don't think much about it. Moses had previously warned them. In Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 38, we read, You will take much seed to the field, but gather little harvest, because your locust will consume it. You know the context, you know the context, right? He says if you, if you sin, if you, if you reject God, this is what's going to happen. That is what the message Moses gave the children of Israel, even before they stepped foot onto that promised land. And the first time they hear about locusts is when? In Egypt, Moses is told, I mean, if you read the passage, go and read Exodus chapter 10 and verse, uh, chapter 10 and chapter 11. This is what it says. Since the beginning of time, since there was people, it says there's never been such locusts and nor after. There seems to be such similarity as you compare what happened in Exodus versus what's happening right now. And, and God is saying that, listen, you need to be aware. You need to be warned. You've seen that before. In Egypt, it was against your enemy. It was the end of your problem. But things seem to have turned. The tide has turned. The locusts, are, it's, they're coming after you. They've come after you, but there's more that is coming. But, you know, the um, thing that really caught my attention, 
in this passage, there's no mention of a specific sin. It doesn't say, Joel doesn't say, these are the list of the sins that you need to uh, confess and it'll be okay. There's no specific sin mentioned. But as you read Joel, what becomes apparent is the state of indifference and the state of callousness, state that says that, listen, I'm I'm okay. I I can coast along. And... um, and the, the the indifference, the the attitude that you know what's happening is okay, seems to come out uh, out there. You see in Joel chapter two verse thirteen, the complacency and indifference, not the rending of your outer garments and all the external expectation, seem to continue. But all these were awfully inadequate. You see, we do all these outside trappings, everything on the outside. God is saying, listen, all that is still showing me an indifferent heart. And that's what he's after. Uh, there's another example in, uh, in the New Testament, similar to what is happening here. If you want to bring it closer home to the New Testament, I, I suggest you do the study on the book of Ephesians or the church at Ephesians. You see, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul, writing to the church, is saying this. He's saying this, I am thankful to God. I thank God when I heard of your love for Christ, love for God and for love for the saints. Let me read that to you. Uh, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you, in my prayers. But you know what happens 30 years later when John is writing? John is writing the book of Revelation. There's a letter written to Ephesians. And in that letter, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, this is what is said, but I have this complaint against you that you don't love me or each other as you did at first. The church in Eph- at Ephesus, they were very, they, they were doing all the work. Yeah, let me give you a list of the things. They labored well, but they loved less. They toiled, they worked patiently, and they endured patiently. Revelation 2, 2. They still stood against all that were evil. They tested those who called themselves apostles and were not. They endured patiently. They bore Christ's name up and did not grow weary. And yet with all the work and all those things, you would have thought that God would give them a pass. But God is saying, listen, you need to come back because you've lost your first love for the Lord and for his people. And they were warned. They were warned. They were to remember from where they had fallen. They were to repent and to do the things they did at first. If not, their testimony in the land would be removed. If we agree that there is no list of sins mentioned against Judah or to the people that Joel was talking about, and then you turn to Revelation and you read about what's happening in the church of Ephesus, they were full of activity, of events and all of that, and yet God is saying, because you've lost your love for the Lord and for his saints, you'll be warned your testimony is going to be removed. I'm going to come back to that 
later, but that's, that, is the, that is something that is coming into focus. I want us to know that as we read the book of Joel. So let's dig a little deep and try and get to the passage that we saw. So in, in chapter one, we did that two weeks ago. It talks about past devastation. Four waves of locusts have come. They've eaten up everything that was green. And, and that devastation brought uh, a, a drought. We read that in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. There has been a severe drought, no rain, and the crops have failed. The herds and the wild animals were perishing because there was no water. And because it was all dry, there were wildfires that were being that, that was destroying forests. In chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, we saw that in chapter 1. But as we get to chapter 2, I want us to know that there is a future destruction that has been that's the warning of future destruction that is coming. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, The nearness of the day of the Lord. The nearness of the day of the Lord. Be warned, the day of the Lord is near. Now, we don't know uh, what that warning looks like. We don't know if that's going to be a continued attack of locusts or whether it's going to be armies because the language would suggest both. We don't know what it is, but I want you to notice the fierceness of the army. In chapter 2, verse 2 to 10, they will destroy the vineyards, the orchids. They will be strong. They'll be numerous. They'll be disciplined. Chapter 2, verse 7, that says as they come in, they will not break ranks. They're so disciplined. They will just charge right through, and everything in the path will be destroyed. That's what is coming. And then he goes on to say in verse 14 and 15, do not think all these are accidents. Do not think that these are natural disasters. This is what God is sending to discipline you. This is what God is sending and he calls it the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. But, you know, the good part about this, what Joel is saying, listen, the day of the Lord is coming, but you don't have to be impacted by it. You see, the day of the Lord will come, but you don't have to be part of that destruction. There is, there is something that you can do about it, and that's the message that we have in chapter 2. So chapter 2 is something like a 13-minute warning. A 13-minute warning. You know, the National Weather Services say this, that, that uh, tornadoes and hurricanes, you cannot predict too far, far enough. It can just come upon you in any, any time in any part of the country is what they say. But they say now they've identified that there's like a 13-minute window. By the time that you know something's going to happen, till you can get away and so that you're not destroyed. Chapter 2 is that. It's a 13-minute window. There's been an early warning system with the attack of the locust, and God is saying the day of the Lord is still coming. There's something still happening in chapter 3. We'll get to that, God willing, next week. But right now, we are parked with the children of Israel, if you would, to see what's happening to them. We want to see this 13-minute window, and what is it that they're going to do? How will they react to that. And so the remedy, and that is where I want you to come with me to chapter 2, verse 12 to 17, the passage that we just read. The passage that we just read. 
And the first part is personal brokenness. A personal brokenness. A genuine repentance. Turn to him, the prophet says, with all your hearts. Rend your hearts. Tear your hearts. Let your, let your heart be broken. Don't, not just outer trappings like everybody seeing things. Uh, don't be satisfied with that. Let your heart be impacted. It has to be personal brokenness. You need to start with that. It's time to get personal. And that is my prayer for us as a community as we start to, to see what it is that we have. My prayer for all of us is that we will come to that, that desperate point of brokenness, saying, the Lord, unless you do something, I, I, I understand that I can't do anything on my own. I'm, I'm desperate for you, Lord. You know, I'm desperate because of the sin that I have. I'm desperate for the way I am. The desperate for the choices I make. Whatever it is, but the desperation for God. Desperation for God. A personal brokenness. What we need is that heart transplant. You know, the spiritual heart transplant. I, was, uh, I heard this many years ago, but it, it says that if you have two pianos in the two ends of this room, and, and they're tuned to each other, that if you play the song or tune on one piano, the resonance gets picked up on the other piano, and I pray that our hearts would be in tune with God to that extent. And that's what this personal brokenness is to bring to, to, to bring us to in tune with God, that our hearts would, would pulsate to the heartbeat of God. And I was thinking about myself, and I, you know, I was just a little, uh, uh, you know, thinking weird at that time probably. I was just saying, listen, I can't sing, I can't keep a tune, I'm all right. No, you know, there's no excuse. You have to be in tune with the Lord. and You know, we, we tend to start giving excuses as flimsy as what I was thinking, or sometimes it seems like the right thing. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, this one thing, that unless we come to a point where our hearts are gripped by the majesty of, the, of who God is, and unless we realize our own desperate hearts, we would not be able to impact and change the world around us. We would, not, we, we would probably be as miserable as the children of Israel are at this point. But that's what they've been asked to do. They've been asked to come. They've been asked to come not just in personal brokenness, but also in corporate repentance. Verse 15 and 17, this is what it says. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. This is what is being said. God is calling his people back, the oldest to the youngest, those preoccupied with the things of life. You know, they, they're getting married. You would think, you know, that's all right. For one year, you don't have to do anything. God is saying, no, 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 no. You have to drop all that. This is very important that you come together in that personal brokenness and that corporate repentance, that you come together. Spiritual leaders, priests, and ministers of the Lord, come, come. I was reading this article about um, this corporate community 
And, um, and the two things that I was thinking about is one is from Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. We, we are aware of this, that children of Israel were told that if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive the sin and heal the land. We know that we keep saying that. But there's also... Um, in James chapter 5, verse 16, where, where it reads, Confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. And John Piper, writing on that, says this, we, we get a little uncomfortable when it comes to corporate dimensions of confession. It's not too threatening to engage in silent confession, you know, to just say, okay, it's between me and God. But when we have to come together in small groups, we use a less indicting statements. I'm struggling with. We try to make things less. Sin is not as, as grave. It's vague. It's toothless. It's non-confessions. And that, that is the reason why he goes on to say that as we come together and confess and say, we begin to realize the importance of sin. And, and that model was what Joel was trying to tell the nation of Israel. Listen, you need to have that personal brokenness, but you need to come together as a nation have a fast call a solemn assembly because you've realized that you're at a point where it's, it's a desperate time. There's not much time left if you want to, if you want to be uh, saved from the day of the Lord. And so my question that I ask is... Um, And I think the question that I've been asking myself is that as we come up to our ninth anniversary on the 30th of September, just in a month or a little more than that, we'll be here nine years. And um, and there seems to be, look at around, why we, how we are, what's going wrong? Is it because we have excused our sins? Is it because we have not been honest with each other? Or like the Ephesian church, full of activity and events and, and yet forgotten the basic? Why is it that God, who has worked so mightily and so wonderfully in centuries past, that we find it difficult to see souls being turned to him? Why is it that people are not coming in. Why? What is it that we need to do? What is it that we can do? There's a question that I kept asking again and again. And I, I, I pray that your hearts are also asking the same question. That your, I want to read to you four stories of great awakenings that have happened in North America. And you will see the pattern as I read that. And so you might think, before I get to that, I want you to understand that what is happening, what would God through Joel is saying is this. Listen, I warned you, be careful. That warning is not just for you to get used to or to say everything is going to be okay. You need to do something about it because they did not. 
They did not. And because they rejected the, the, the word of God through Joel and through Jeremiah and through Isaiah and through Habakkuk and through Micah and through all of those prophets, they, they went through such times, exiles and rejection and all of that. And I understand that you might say our covenant is not the Israel's covenant. We, we are not under the same conditions. I get that. But I want you to understand the principle. Don't forget the principle. The principle is this, that if you think you can, you can sit where you are, I stand here where I am, and I think it's all okay, and not be impacted as we see around, and not come together, then I think we are fooling ourselves. We can't fool God. I want us to understand that. I want us to understand that. Let me read to you these, these stories. The, great, the first great awakening that happened in 1734. The crisis in the colonies was severe. Moral conditions were dire. Not one in 20 claimed to be a Christian. And at that time, Theodore Freeling Huysen, he began praying fervently. And he prayed for revival to the colonies, first with himself, and then with his church, and then with the larger community. Others began to join his fledging prayer movement. The spirit began to move. And under his preaching, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, the first great awakening happened as much as 80%, 80% of the colonial population became identified with a Christian church. All because a community came together in desperate brokenness and corporate prayer. Second Awakening, 1792. After the War of Independence, the social conditions grew worse than before. Drunkenness was extreme. Women were afraid to go out at night for fear of assault. B bank robberies were a daily occurrence. There was not a single believer in Harvard University that started off as a Christian university at that time in, uh, in 1792, not a single believer. Princeton had two believers, and Tom Thomas Paine had claimed that Christianity would be forgotten in 30 years, but thank God he was mistaken, because in 1784, Isaac Bacchus gathered a number of ministers. He wrote a circular letter asking believers to pray for the awakening. Prayer groups spread all over New England. 1792, revival broke out on college campuses where hundreds were converted. Camp meetings spread out out across the frontier. Eventually, more than thousands were meeting annually. Churches doubled and tripled in membership. One church in Kentucky of 170 baptized 421 people on a single revival meeting. And that year, William Carey began the modern missions. American Bible Society, American Tract Society, all of those organizations were influenced because of this awakening or because a community came together in desperate brokenness and corporate prayer. Third awakening, 1858. The gold rush of 1848 had, uh, had crashed in 1857. The fear of civil war was increasing, and in the midst of such fear and anxiety, a group of men just began to pray. 
and uh, there was Jeremiah Lamphire. And the first day, six people came together. The next week, 14, then 23. And the group began to meet daily, and it outgrew the church, and it began filling other churches. The meetings spread across the country. The result was the most significant movement in Christian history. More than a million people were saved in one year out of a national population of 30 million. Revival continued. 50,000 people were coming to Christ every week. During the Civil War, 100,000 soldiers were converted, all because a community came together in desperate brokenness and corporate prayer. The Fourth Great Awakening, 1904. This this movement was birthed in Wales, in the heart of a Welsh coal miner called Evan Roberts. He was convicted of a sin by the Spirit and turned to God in prayer and repentance. And then he began preaching to the young people in his church, calling them to prayer and to repentance. Prayer meetings broke out all over Wales. Social conditions were impacted dramatically. Listen to this. Tavern owners, the pub owners, they went bankrupt. Police had to form a gospel quartet because there was nobody to arrest and nobody to put into jail. Coal mines shut down. Listen to this. Coal mines shut down because the miners stopped using profanity and the mules could no longer understand what was happening. And so they had to shut down coal mines. Revival had spread even to America. Ministers in Atlantic City, New Jersey, reported that out of 50,000, only 50 adults were left unconverted. In Portland, Oregon, more than 200 stores were closed daily from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. so that people could pray. In 1896, only 2,000 students were engaged in missionary studies, but by 1906, there were 11,000 who were enrolled, all because a community came together in desperate brokenness, and corporate prayer. And it is said, it is said that there is a fifth awakening happening in our times. I want to read to you some things that are happening around the world as of this moment. World Christian Encyclopedia says there are about 82,000 conversions happening in the world as of today, as in our times. And uh, that's the highest number in history. Now, I'm not sure about numbers. I don't want to get caught up in the numbers. But I want you to share with you some of the things that's happening. China is an example, which has been the most secular nation. Scholars estimate there are about 67 to 100 million Christians compared to 87 million Communist Party members. South Korea, not a single born-again Christian were there in the Korean Peninsula a century ago, but today one-third of them are born-again Christians. Brazil, which is the largest Catholic nation uh, where there were only 5% of born-again Christians, there are now 22%. They say by 2020 that their population would have 50% of born-again Christians. Cuba is growing so quickly that Christianity today has labeled it the Cuban revival. Cyber missions, which is missions through the internet, 
is reaching out to Iran, to all these closed countries, and people are coming to know the Lord. But it's not about what's happening around the world. I want to ask the question of what's happening in our midst. In our midst. I pray that if God, through Joel, has been speaking through the nation of Israel, and as I kept reading to you again and again and again and again, every time revival broke out, it's because people came together in that desperate sense for God. And they came together in that corporate repentance, saying, the Lord, you have to work in our midst. And all the activity, everything that we can do is just nothing. You have said that to the Ephesians, Lord. You have said that unless we come together in the love for God and the love for his people, all that is of nothing. And we pray that you would work in our midst. We pray that you would fill the spews, not because we want numbers, but we want to see you work in our midst. Because when you work in our midst, souls are converted. Let's not fool ourselves. And I pray, and I pray that we will join this movement that is happening. Let it not be that we read these four awakenings and, and, and this opportunity to join this awakening in our midst, that the revival would break out. Those communities that we've been trying to reach out, that there would be souls who would be poured into the kingdom because you and I, we stood up and we were desperate for God to work in our midst. I beg of you, my brothers and sisters. We can <clears throat> we can um, talk everything, and we can say this is the way we need to do things, and oh, all that. You know, in the uh, this is what I think. All these minor differences that we might have will burn up in the fervor and the fire of the love that we have for God and for his people. The only thing that matters is that we would love God and love his people. And that when they see that, that's what the Lord said. And when they see that, they will say, when they see the love, they will see that you are my disciples. When they see this love, this agape love that we, have ex- that we show each other, that the rest of the world will say, this is out of the world. And that is what will start to bring that revival in our midst. In this city of ours, there are about 600,000 people. Then you take Brampton, you take Milton, and all the, all the cities that we come together from. There's work to be done but we need to first begin right in personal brokenness and corporate repentance. And so as uh, we look forward to talking as to, Lord, in, in, in that desperate sense, Lord, as we come to celebrate another year of your faithfulness to us, may we start asking this question, how faithful have we been? And that we would not be satisfied with mediocrity in our midst. But we want this great God to show us his great and mighty works. That his name be glorified in our midst. Father, we 
Thank you for your word. We, we pray, Lord, that um, we are excited enough, Lord, to see that you are, uh, you do your work in majestic ways and in wonderful ways. And we pray that you would call us alongside and, Lord, that you would grip our hearts just like those disciples on the way to Emmaus who said, did our hearts not burn, that our hearts would indeed burn, that our knees would indeed bend, that our feet would indeed walk and reach, Lord, to this community. Father, we pray that each one of us, as we impact our places where we are, that we will begin to see this revival happening because we came together in that personal brokenness, a desperation for you, and we came together to pray uh, as your people for your people because they have come together and they have prayed that you would heal this place, this land, this people who are here. Heal them of their spiritual apathy, the spiritual blindness that they have, and bring them to yourself. We want to see, Lord, your spirit move in our midst. This is our prayer. We thank you that you will answer it because we offer it for your glory and in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.